Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, May 14, 2015. I'm joined by Rod Saferi, if I'm uh, pronouncing his name correctly. Rod, did I get that right? Yes. Yes, okay. that's correct. Hello, everybody. A New York lawyer who is also familiar with California uh, process. Tonight, we continue to put the spotlight on attorneys who, like who like foreclosure defense, and who like foreclosure offense by the homeowner. But first, there's big news from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Sixth Federal Circuit said yesterday that if Bank of America didn't have the right to foreclose, it doesn't matter whether the homeowner was in default or not. That turns the whole judicial community on its head, just like Kessinowski did in January about rescission. In in the Jesenowski decision, Justice Scalia, speaking for a unanimous Supreme Court, said that thousands of judges and hundreds of thousands of decisions got it wrong about rescission. And now that has sparked not only an examination of past cases, that were wrongfully decided, but also an examination of the value of the mortgage bonds issued by trusts who supposedly acquired loans and loan documents based upon non-existent or rescinded transactions. The Sixth Circuit took dead aim at the prevailing question asked by judges and attorneys for the banks and services. For about 10 years now, they've been saying that as long as the homeowner is in default, what difference does it make who is foreclosing? This Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals says that's the wrong question. If the foreclosing party has no right to be foreclosing, what difference does it make if the alleged borrower is or is not in default? The Sixth Circuit says it doesn't make any difference whether a default is alleged, proven, or even admitted. If Bank of America did not have the right to foreclose, they not only cannot foreclose, they are liable for both wrongful foreclosure and now, with this decision, potentially liable for a RICO action. Lawyers are going to get rich off of this, and wealth may well start moving back into households as a result of this decision. I'm broadcasting live from Boynton Beach, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, and our, the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida and 
This show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. Our mission is to share as much information as we can to help beleaguered homeowners and other people who may not be aware that of the effect that the housing crisis has had on them or their neighbors. And we are accomplishing our mission here. As more and more lawyers and judges are seeing that the facts are not as they appear on the papers that are being used by banks, trustees, and services to foreclose. Therefore, they're finding that the presumptions and conclusions based on those papers are not only faulty, they're plain wrong, and as I just mentioned from the Sixth Circuit, wrongful, not only as a wrongful foreclosure, but as a RICO action, racketeering. Rod Zafiro is a lawyer licensed in the state of New York and is currently assisting California lawyers deal with many cases. He was born in the Hudson River Valley of New York, a place I know well. He was educated at Union College in Schenectady, New York, where he earned his Bachelor of Arts degree, and at Franklin Pierce Law Center, now the University of New Hampshire Law School, where he completed his Juris Doctor. Rod, welcome to the Neil Garfield Show. Thank you, Neil. So here you are, licensed in New York and transplanted to California and working as a paralegal, what are the differences? I think we ought to emphasize here. Um, um, first of all, I'm licensed in Florida and in no other state. And uh, Rod is licensed in New York. And although he's in California, he is not licensed to practice law there. And this show is for general information only and you should not rely on it, as it says in the introduction, uh, as a substitute for the opinion of an attorney who is licensed within the jurisdiction in which your property is located. So, having given that, Rod, what do you perceive as the differences between New York and California when it comes to foreclosure defense and rescission enforcement? Well, uh, the major differences are uh, really procedurally. Uh, with California being a non-judicial foreclosure state and New York being a judicial foreclosure state, uh, in New York, uh, a foreclosure really doesn't look that much different from any other lawsuit. Um, so it's defended similarly. California being the non-judicial system, uh, there really is no foreclosure defense uh, within that non-judicial system. So uh, in California, a uh, homeowner has to resort to the courts uh, as a plaintiff uh, to to defend uh, what's going on non-judicially. Uh, and it's the opposite in New York. The lenders who are foreclosing, they're the plaintiffs. Um but 
practically speaking, uh, the way it all shakes out at the end of the process, uh, it's not that much different between the two states. Uh, and I, I think it's because they're two of the largest states in the union. Uh, you're dealing with hundreds of judges. Um, and, uh, you know, their, their attitudes really aren't that different. You're going to find um, biases on both sides. Uh, in New York, Judge Shack's kind of famous for uh, really taking the lenders to task and the way, well, I think more taking the lender, lenders' lawyers to task for the way they do business. And uh, he's usually right about that. Um, you know, and then there's judges who uh, they hear uh, or, or they don't see anything that shows you're uh, contesting that money is owed under the loan, uh, then a lender's bias tends to kick in with some of them, and it doesn't matter uh, from that point forward uh, what else is going on in your case. Um, but I think in both states over the past year or so uh, that um, the table has kind of tilted a bit more towards the borrower and away from the lender, um, making it a somewhat more fair process than it was before. Um, I agree with that. I think that uh, things are changing and uh, uh, as I had said years back, that uh, the more time you buy uh, before the end of your case, uh, the more decisions will come out that are favorable to the borrower, which will give uh, uh, the borrower a little bit more credibility in asserting uh, defenses. Rod, uh, if listeners want to get a hold of you directly, do you have a number that you want to give out now? Sure. It's 650-346-3741. Okay. And we'll, we'll repeat that again in a little bit. Um, which strategies from your perspective, seems to be getting most uh, the most traction in court? Uh, it, it depends what kind of court you have. Um, I think all courts uh, like the, um, the tried and true uh, uh, causes of action, uh, the things you see in law school, uh, the breaches of the contract, or uh, if you're in a judicial foreclosure state, defenses to that. Um, and, you know, they'll, if, it, if it is that type of action, uh, they'll even tolerate allegations of uh, conspiracy, aiding and abetting amongst different players uh, relating to the origination of the loans. Um, so you get some traction that way. Uh, 
I think uh, anything that you could show you can prove is what the courts are looking for, that you have to have something like that at the outset uh, or else, you know, the judges are looking at hundreds of these cases, and I think they get exasperated uh, by seeing a lot that don't have a lot of meat behind it. Um, so you got to have something at the outset to overcome that bias. Yeah. Yeah. I've often felt that some of the uh, defenses or allegations in a non-judicial state where the uh, homeowner has to bring the lawsuit, uh, some of the allegations that the judges have the least uh, tolerance for really issues of burden of proof and that there's been a confusion by the judges between what is sufficient pleading versus what happens at trial. For example, uh, if they sustain a complaint here in Florida uh, that has the bare essentials um, to prove, to, to allege standing, they seem to treat it at trial in many cases, unless you, really get aggressive uh, as though that standing issue has already been resolved. Have you seen that? Yes. And that's, you know, uh, distressing to say the least, because I I, I think uh, your summary shows the way it's supposed to be. Uh, Yeah. You can, um, you can get, uh, you could get past an initial challenge uh, to standing by by uh, posing certain allegations, right? That's fine in pretrial motions. That doesn't mean that you proved it. And uh, I, I do see that sometimes uh, that it's treated that way, and 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 it's burden shifting, and it shouldn't go yeah, on. I mean, but some I, I I often hear the judge get annoyed with me or with other lawyers. And what I find in myself, because I sat on the bench by special appointment, I get annoyed with judges who do that because they're not really being judges when they when they take that attitude, in my opinion. Um, which strategies do you think are getting the least traction in court now? Uh, well, certainly anything that, Anything that's been rejected by appeals courts for several years now, um, you, you've got to be careful uh, when you're challenging uh, a promissory note, for example. That that you got to be careful you don't get thrown into the show me the note uh, camp because that that will not only make you lose on the issue, it, it, it will, uh, you may lose credibility and it could hurt you in the rest of the case. Um, so, uh, things like that, um, you know, there's, uh, that, that was probably the first to run into major difficulty and not, not that it's, not true that a creditor who's seeking to foreclose based on a note uh, would have to show that uh, they're either a holder of the note or a 
person and otherwise entitled to enforce it. Uh, it's just, it's just the way I think early cases posed it, uh, and it made some law that, uh, is, 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 uh, consistently cited by lending attorneys, uh, even if it is not on square with the facts of your case. And, uh, Sometimes courts just knee-jerk make you lose on that. Um, A little more recent than that is the rejection of a borrower uh, arguing that their note is void uh, to a plaintiff who purports to be a securitized trust uh, because of noncompliance with the terms of the PSA or more importantly non-compliance with New York trust law uh, with respect to transferring the interest to the trust. Um, and that has been shot down by a lot of cases. Uh, I still make the argument because I believe it's non-frivolous, even in spite of those cases, because, frankly, I think they're bad law. I think uh, the case that seems like all of them cite to was, uh, I think it was a Minnesota case somewhere out west uh, that considered New York trust law, and it cited a couple New York cases um, that were... uh, appellate division cases. They weren't the highest court in New York, which is the Court of Appeals. Um, And I think their reasoning is is not very good. And uh, I have an argument in that regard. Um, Yeah, I I agree with you. I I agree with you completely there. I think that the the idea expressed by many judges, but not all. I have won a few cases where the judge was right on board. But most judges, I think, uh, are all too willing to rule that the uh, the trust instrument is irrelevant and the, and, and the contents of it are irrelevant. And yet they are alleging in one form or another, whether it's in California as a beneficiary or New York as a mortgagee. They're alleging that they have a right to be there because of that trust instrument. And to say that it's irrelevant what is in that trust instrument seems just bizarre. And another one of, you know, we've had Jessanowski and now the Sixth Circuit opinion. Um, I think that's going to be another one that gets turned over on its head. I mean, if you have a, a party that's claiming to be the servicer, they can only be the servicer if they are party to some agreement. And in most cases, the agreement that they supposedly got their authority from it, uh, is the pooling and servicing agreement. And if that pooling and servicing agreement says that the loan had to be transferred in the cutoff time and, and all that stuff, I don't see how that's not relevant. Especially I don't, I don't either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially considering New York law, which says that 
any act that is uh, uh, contrary to what is contained in the in the trust instrument is void, not voidable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 It's, so, it's 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 outrageous. There. Um, you know, I don't know if it's uh, if it's an outright bias in the court. I don't know if it's a lazy staff attorney. Uh, I don't I don't know what it is that makes a judge wording that says all acts in contravention of the trust instrument are void, period, and says, oh, they didn't mean void. They meant voidable. Uh, what? H- how is that justified under our system of jurisprudence? Because, uh, you, you know, I, I always thought it was black letter law that you don't, engage in a judicial construction of a statute unless you first determine that the language is ambiguous. And in any of these cases, not one of these courts made that initial determination. Uh, And the case law states, and this is case law all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, that you Use the plain wording of the statute if it's unambiguous. Your your judicial, your um, statutory interpretation uh, starts and ends right there. But they're they're going beyond that. And um, before I leave the issue of the PSA and having standing under the PSA, uh, I, I wanted to um, inform some folks because I, I haven't seen this in any published case that has uh, determined the issue uh, that the PSA, um, sorry, New York Trust Law, EPTL, I think it's Um, 7.24, that has that section that I just quoted. That's not the first law, right? There, There was a law that preceded that law that was, almost identical in language. I think a couple commas were off, but but it was almost identical. And unlike EPTL 7.24, which has no Court of Appeals, New York Court of Appeals decisions construing it, whether, whether void means void or something else, unlike the new one, the old one, had several New York Court of Appeals decisions where the question was presented, does void mean void? And they said, yeah, sure does. Void means void. Now, all these cases uh, that the lender attorneys are citing for the proposition that a, a borrower does not have standing enforce a PSA, first of all, I think that's a ridiculous statement. That's not what's being done but that's another story. Uh, all of them are relying upon a law that I think ignores mandatory authority from the New York Court of Appeals. And not only that, but in the 19th century, California basically imported the code from New York, not just civil practice rules and law, but others as well, including the estate uh, powers law, and, uh, and had the same statute. And guess what? 
the highest court in California, the California Supreme Court, also looked at that statute and said void means void, not voidable. So so the, the cases that are being relied on are just terrible. They don't first find that the language is ambiguous uh, to engage in statutory construction, and they do it anyway. They ignore mandatory authority from the highest court in New York construing a statute that was substantially similar. Uh, let me uh, remind our listeners that your telephone number, because I'm sure they're a lot more interested in talking to you than at the beginning of the program. Uh, you, you, you've really laid it out very well. Uh, Thank again, you. Rod Spare, uh, his number is 650-346-3741. 650-346-3741 and if you can't get them directly you can always call my numbers uh, 954-495-9867 and we'll get a message to them or 520-405-1688 if you're out west um, we only have about two minutes left Rod uh, what are your views about rescission under TILA now, and uh, uh, specifically, uh, do you have an opinion as to my assertion about there being only a 20-day window in which the creditor must either sue the borrower uh, uh, on the rescission or waive their defenses forever? Do you agree or disagree? I agree with that assertion. I agree with that assertion because well, for several reasons, but one of them is uh, Truth in Lending Act created not a common law remedy. It created a statutory remedy. It created a remedy at law. It created an adequate remedy at law because upon the borrower's rescission, the lender, uh, assuming it discharges its obligations first, will then be tendered back the property. And this is their this is their remedy that almost invariably they choose not to take. Then they think they could go into court and invoke the court's equitable jurisdiction and use its equitable powers to basically turn the TILA rescission, a statutory one, into a common law equitable rescission. Um, and there's a lot of cases showing that. And I think the conclusion I'm coming to after Jesnowski is Jesnowski, first of all, confirms there's a way you could do rescission via purely via notice. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, it's kind of surprising they had to do that because, like you, Neil, I've always read the statute the way it, it said it. Um, but courts, uh, you know, they, they're, they're, uh, I think looking at it like it's like rescission is referring to a common law process. And I think part of the reason why Jezinowski Scalia made the opinion so short, uh, I think it's a subtle dig at all the circuit courts who didn't get that. And um, I agree with that completely. I, I think it was a real slap. And, and uh, the judges who still, refuse to get it are, are doing so at their own peril. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I think it's I think Jasnowski's a huge bombshell, to tell you the truth. It, it really, um, you know, in, in cases where people went into court without giving a notice and they just prayed to the court for a Kiva rescission, uh, any case law about that I think stays the same. Um, but where a borrower gives a notice, now you're in a totally different world, and it, it can't be ignored. And I think they have to come in and sue within 20 days because, you know, uh, yeah, TIVA in its last sentence in, in Section 1635B um, I gotta, gives a court. I got to cut you off here. Yeah. I got to cut you off here. We've run out of time. Uh, Rod Safaro, thank you very much. Uh, 650-346-3741 is his number. I will see you all in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.